1: uh, somebody screwing it up, getting it all wrong. Uh, I thought it would be great to just touch base with a few people that are getting it right. Uh, you know, we've had this uh, Hurricane Dorian off the coast of Florida after it had made a path uh, through the Bahamas. And my hats are off really to, yeah. But my hat's off to two governors, two Republican governors and it's coming from a Democrat. Uh, to Ron DeSantis in Florida and Henry McMaster in South Carolina. Uh, They've gotten out in front of it, uh, trying to get everybody prepared, trying to get people out of harm's way, changing traffic patterns, putting out lists uh, through various state government departments as to what people need to do, what they need to take care of, and then even some companies involved. I mean, some of the energy companies like Mm -hmm. Duke Energy has, sent out uh, blast notices to customers, as has State Farm, and both of them, when you go on their website, they have information on on everything from YouTube, social media, as well as on their websites. So I just wanted to say, job well done. Uh, Impressive communications to help people.
2: Yeah, Mike, you're in South Carolina right now. So, you know, in real time, the hurricane is still sort of looming off the coast. Can you tell me, you know, you mentioned a few things, but governor to McMaster. Um, has he been on TV a lot? Has he been uh, out oh, in the field? You know,
1: oh, oh, yeah. So, he, so, so he's been visiting different communities. Uh, he held a press conference where he had all the different state agencies as well as some of the federal agencies there to sort of give people kind of the quick t- tips they need in order to be safe, in order to uh, information on how best to even board up houses—it's uh, been phenomenal. That's amazing.
2: That 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 really is amazing. And the utility—I know Duke particularly has won awards for this over the years on some of the other storms that they've been through. But giving people real usable information is so important in these things. You know, and this hurricane has taken a couple turns, too, right? The the predictability of yeah. the path has been difficult, um, both for, yeah. for the governors and for the utilities.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, it's probably a little confusing for some consumers. You know, there's a European model, and, right. and there's, uh, you know, the National Weather Service model, and, and, and you see, you know, five or six different lines on a chart. Uh, but I think what's been uh, remarkable is that Uh, We have these things periodically, but it seems a number of companies and a number of elected officials have learned. Like I had earlier today, uh, Duke Energy's website up uh, and, you know, it was urging customers how to prepare for Hurricane Dorian, uh, predicting where there might be power outages and what people can do. Uh, so, anyway,
2: uh, my hat's off. Yeah, so, I I one more I'd add in. All these folks. I one more I'd add in is New York Times for explanatory yeah. journalism. Go on the, uh, the Times site and you'll see, you look for what that sort of path, that cone that you always see for the path of the hurricane, yeah. what it yeah, really the cone means. Of right, and what it yeah. doesn't mean. And uh, the Times does a great job of explaining um, how a lot of people misinterpret that cone and think, oh, we're on the edge of it and we're okay. You're not okay, potentially. Right. And and it's very, very well done. So I'd I'd uh, I'd put a pitch in for The New York Times, too. Uh, Again, another topic, Mike, um, in the news, obviously, another terrible shooting in Texas, this time in Odessa. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we hear and I I read this morning, for example, in the Columbia Journalism Review that the media you know, after these things, you know, goes right after the message on gun control, which is a reasonable thing to do, but it's become very repetitive, and people have stopped listening to both sides. Is there ever going to be a a message that breaks through? I know Beto O'Rourke is trying some very graphic and and passionate language that changes minds in the U.S. Senate about uh, gun control, background checks, et cetera. Do you think there'll ever be? something that breaks through?
1: You know, I think the closest that we tend to get on any of these things is when it impacts children. Yes. That's when we actually begin to see legislation, and then, you know, time gets between the event and the actual time of, of voting, and things get watered down, things get forgotten. Um, unfortunately, I think it's going to have to um, happen in such a way uh, that young people and, and and parents with young children uh, begin to take a stand, and I, I saw something very interesting. You mentioned you know, that I've been spending part of my summer down here in South Carolina, and I'm I I, I went to a diner mm-hmm. uh, the day after the Odessa shooter, uh, shooting incident. And there's this guy walks in and he's got an NRA T-shirt and on the back of his T-shirt with a big patriotic American flag, it says, I, I am the NRA. Right. Um, And what was interesting is to watch, there were probably three families with young children that filtered into the diner and they all looked at this guy's T-shirt and they all asked to be seated seated. Far away from this general. Wow. Um, and that's when it kind of resonated with me: is that somehow, you know, uh, on, on one hand, yes, he's the NRA, uh, but these are our children that are being impacted by such violence, and we've got to make sure that people understand that. Yeah, because you know, when you go through so many of these incidences we we see them you know most of the time it's a weapon uh, with a large magazine uh, many of these have been uh, carried out with uh, you know a, a, an automatic rifle like an AR15 right right um, it, it seems to me that we can still protect gun owners rights and protect more human beings on this planet
2: yes and and uh you know i i i uh i I was uh walking down the streets here in Boston yesterday and uh, uh, saw a young person walk by me with an AR15 shirt on and uh, mm-hmm. and and it was uh it was interesting and it was provocative to others on the street um, so mm-hmm. I, I you know to your point awareness is rising uh whether there'll be mm-hmm. a message or a person who breaks through will We'll have to see, uh, but certainly awareness yeah. is rising among among some uh, young people, particularly here on the streets near Boston University.
1: Now, yeah. one thing that caught my eye in the in, in the news too was um, the, there was a firing of uh, oh of yeah a white a White House Oval Office individual. I, I think the term that the White House used was separated employee. Right. Uh, right. Her name was Madeline Westerhouse, and what. Madeline did, at least from the news story's account, is inadvertently disclose some sensitive Trump family matters to journalists at a dinner party, and uh, and I started thinking about it in the context of the world you and I live in. And might she still have her job if she had used six simple words? This is off the record, right?
2: <laughs> exactly you know
1: and and and, and, it's a, and i think a lot of people uh even people who work in media relations for companies and other organizations aren't quite clear about this thing about no. off the record and now you've worked on both sides as a journalist and as well as managing media relations for a large company um help our audience out around you know when is the right time to invoke, um, you know, off the record? It clearly isn't after you've already spoken.
2: No, exactly. And in this case, um, not only should she have asked the question, but you have to wait for the response. In other words, exactly. it's, it's they grant that permission to you. Um, and so um, it, it sounds like she was a very nice person. And even as the president said, ha- had a bad night. Um, You would be surprised, Mike, not you, but maybe some of our listeners would be surprised. uh, Senior executives in big companies who do not know, they see this in the movies, they see it talked about in the media, but what off the record means, um, when to use Mm it, uh, what on background means, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And my rule always to them was I tried to explain that kind of thing to them and only use off the record if it's something that um you think advances the story for the for the reporter but is not um trying to position yourself in a better way in other words it's just a piece of information that they can pursue on their own however my advice always was if you don't want to see it in the story if you don't want the reporter to pursue mm-hmm. it don't say it either on the record right. or just don't say it and and, right, and, right. and and so and as a reporter You know, I had a much different outlook. I would always introduce myself as a reporter or who I was working for and say, I'd like to interview you about such and such, some topic. And my presumption was that, you know, sometimes these were people on the street, that they knew what I was talking about and that therefore um, their, their information they provided me, the words they provided me could be used. And as Mm -hmm. I got later in my career, I began to explain to people um, what it means to be interviewed, you know. And it means Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning, I would ask them their name and how to spell it Mm -hmm. and explain to them, Mm -hmm. I may attribute some of what we talk about to you. So, uh, Um, you you know what I mean? I I got a little deeper understanding. Well,
1: I think I, I... I think what you did is the best possible thing, right? Because you want it to be jargon free. You want it to be clear to the individual you're talking with. Yes. But the other side of it is is everybody listening to Also know that anything you say to a reporter, whether they introduce themselves as a reporter or not, uh, whether they take the time that you did or not, uh, that as a general principle that if you are Fearful that what you say may end up in print or end up in a story, the best course of action is to get the ground rules settled up front. Exactly, you can't say something and then say, "Oh yeah, you understand that was off the record." No, no, exactly. You
2: said it. It, that's right. That's right. And, and particularly at these dinners, sometimes we would, when I was at GE, and I would have MLT in dinners with senior editors and senior journalists. Um you know I would sit in on those dinners and you know it's a very casual conversation about topics and and uh, he would say something like Jeff might say something like now I want this to be off the record and he would start talking and I would say, whoa wait a minute (laughs) (laughs) everybody I want everybody (laughs) (laughs) exactly so it's a it, it it is a sort of an artificial kind of thing to insert yourself in a conversation like that but so necessary and here This poor woman who, uh, you know, apparently had a couple glasses of wine and said some things about the Trump family at a dinner that uh, were regrettable. So uh, very important for CCOs and everybody in media relations and business executives to understand, you know, if you don't want to see it in print, just don't say it.
1: Now, in in a few moments, we have a great conversation with Eric Schnurr. Uh, who worked with you at GE, who is mm-hmm. a... Uh, Best speechwriter uh, speech I ever worked with. Sem- yep.
2: Best. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, he's a speechwriter of, 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 of note. Uh, yes. I mean, a lot of people know him, love him. Uh, and uh, I'm excited about it, simply because, you know, when we're up in Boston, we get a lot of candidates who are traipsing through on their way to New Hampshire, <laughs> and we get to see and hear them here in South Carolina I've gotten to hear a lot of the candidates and see them Uh, and it's interesting as you see the debate you know and the and the the rules in order to be included in the debates are beginning to winnow the Democratic field I guess we're the next debates gonna have have ten and they're gonna all be on one night rather than two nights of ten but it's interesting to me As we get ready for this conversation with Eric about messaging and that is that I I went to an event with Julian Castro this past week and one of the things that uh, while I I, I love him to death um, it was interesting to see him tell his personal story which connected very well but then he kind of goes off on this you know, iteration of twenty different issues, and so I'm going to be really interested in what Eric has to say around. You know, what do you need to do to focus the message?
2: Exactly, and he, he'll. Uh, I know Eric. He'll he'll talk about that. Well, just uh, remarkable, um, uh, for, remarkable in his ability to identify the story, and and yeah. and what has meaning to audiences, and what 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 uh, what doesn't. And uh, I think you'll find... well, w- go ahead, Mike. And
1: what you and what you said about story in terms of storytelling, I think maybe where the nub of this is because we also saw two candidates exit fairly recently in, in, in Christian Gillibrand yes. and in Jay Inslee, both of whom had almost very very focused messages and maybe too focused. That's right. Uh, for the audience, and Inslee was focused on uh, environment. Gillibrand focused a lot on women's issues, so I'm interested, it'll be fun to talk to Eric.
2: Yes, and 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 funny too, fun and funny.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Our guest today on The Crocs is one of the best speechwriters around, uh, and I know that from personal experience, and one of the most sought after political humor writers in the US, Eric Schnoor. Eric and Robert Lehrman, an esteemed speechwriter and author, just came out with a new book, The Political Speechwriter's Companion, a guide for speakers and writers, and this is the second edition. And if say, I say I read it, um, and uh, it is a very easy and a very fun read, particularly if you like speechwriting in words, rhetoric, and you like politics. So congratulations, Eric. Um, The best thing for for me about it was the examples. There's something like 250 examples in the book from both Republicans and Democrats. The annotated speeches from recent elections I thought were just really fascinating, really well done. And I found the lessons to be specific and profound at the same time and just plain fun, as I said chapters on research audiences, ethics, and even one on how to handle a difficult client, which Eric knows something about. And the book is centered on the idea of employing simple language, the use of uh, story to inspire humor and other ideas, all all while reaffirming the need for the speech, of course, to be substantive and truthful. Eric started writing speeches for Al Gore back in the 1990s, so we're going to want to ask him about that. Uh, Served as a communications advisor and speechwriter at NASA and I believe at HUD, and even did a stint working at GE for me as an in-house speechwriter, and we'll have to uh, talk about that a little bit. Today, uh, Eric owns his own business, through which he coaches and writes for business executives and government leaders. And Eric is also an adjunct professor at American University, a great school where he teaches speech writing. Eric, welcome to The Crux.
0: Thank you, Gary. Thank you for having me. And hi, Mike, as well.
2: Hi. Glad to have you on. So, so tell us more, more about your new book, It's the structure of it, the, who you're trying to reach here, Eric. And then i got to ask yeah. you, so do that a little bit, and then I've gotta, I want to follow up on speech writing in this era.
0: Sure. So, the book, as you mentioned, is The Political Speechwriter's Companion. It's a second edition. Uh, my friend and colleague and mentor, Bob Lehrman, uh, who I worked for back in 1993 when I first arrived in Washington, um, I had this amazing qualification of being willing to work for free, uh, which he <laughs> took full advantage of. Uh, and we've been close ever since. And about 12 years ago or so, Uh, Bob, we were teaching at American Together, and Bob told me that he wanted to take our syllabus and turn it into a textbook. And at the time, Congressional uh, Quarterly, CQ Press, uh, was the publisher. I remember Bob bringing this huge stack of papers to my house, and we would sit down and talk about chapter after chapter after chapter. And the first edition of the book came out maybe 10 years ago. And then a few years ago, Bob called me and said, listen, you helped a lot on the first one. What about a second edition, and will you be a co-author?
2: Nice. Uh, And
0: I said, yeah, and I said, of course, one, because Bob's my mentor, and I love the opportunity to work on a project with him. And then if I'm 100% honest, and Bob probably felt the same way, we thought, okay, second edition, that's a nice editing job and probably worth our time. Uh, we were both sadly mistaken. We rewrote <laughs> probably 75% of the book. <laughs> I was
2: going to say, now, you, you have to in 10 years, the way communications has changed, and particularly uh, speech writing and the delivery of speeches, so there's a lot of change that you have to represent. There is,
0: there is a lot of change, and it starts with what you mentioned earlier, these 250 or so examples. Um, you know, 10 years ago, when the first book was released, Barack Obama had just been elected president, wow. so we had no speeches from his presidency, and obviously he was known as someone who could deliver great speeches. And then, of course, the president we have now, who's equally known for his rhetoric <laughs> um, and things like Twitter, that wasn't even a thought in the first edition. So just kind of updating the examples alone, much less the strategies behind them, um, turned out to be a pretty big task.
2: Yeah. and And so... So tell me why, Eric, because I know it is in my heart, I, I, I love speech writing and I and I'm a student of it. But in this era of s- sort of rhetorical, you know, freelancing, why is it still important?
0: Yeah, it's it's a fair question. Um, yeah, a friend of mine, David Murray, who runs something called the Professional Speechwriters Association, he's always quick to point out that the reason for speeches used to be one of utility. It was one of the. It was the most efficient way to tell a lot of people a piece of information, and you know, as long as they were in earshot, you could share and deliver a message. Today, speech right, speeches may be the most inefficient way to deliver a message. I mean, who wants to gather and <laughs> have to travel somewhere and listen to someone and listen to someone deliver what? speeches usually are, which is a white guy talking for too long, um, <laughs> <laughs> right? as they've been for thousands of years. So it's a worthwhile question. And the answer, yeah. at least for me, is that people have an expectation from their leaders, whether it's political leaders, corporate leaders, uh, religious leaders, whatever it may be, um, They have an expectation that those people can stand in front of them, make all important eyeball-to-eyeball contact, and make a connection with people to educate them, sometimes to console them, to convince them, uh, and hopefully inspire them. And if you buy the idea, that I certainly do, that this connection between beaker and audience is important and worthwhile, well then certainly... Speeches are important, and you, know, you can deduce
1: then that speech writing is important.
2: Yeah, well said. Well yeah. said. I completely yeah.
1: agree. Now, you started your career, uh, Eric, uh, uh, working for Al Gore. Now, uh, you can say a lot of great things about Al Gore, but he's not somebody who comes to mind as necessarily being a great speaker. And yet your book provides great advice on how to work with executives, of how to write and deliver speeches. What was your assessment being up close? Because I really admire Al Gore for a lot of the things that he did as a policymaker. I supported him when he was running for president, but was he a good client or a difficult one?
0: Mike, I appreciate that your first <laughs> question is designed to get me in trouble. <laughs> uh. <laughs>
1: Fellow Democrats, look at I,
0: say? <laughs> I he was, um, Whether he was a, a, a good client is a, is a good question, and as with most bosses, uh, the answer is yes and no. So why was he yeah. a good client? Well, first and foremost, he was a good client if you like working for people that you believe are smarter than you and have a vision that you believe in. Yeah. Um, so for that reason alone, and because he – had a vision and was extraordinarily smart. He was always pushing writers and other staff in a way to keep mm-hmm. up, so if that's yeah. important to you uh, and if that's mm-hmm. at least in part how you define a good client, he was a good client He was also yeah. a good client in that um, at least for me, and I was in my you know early to mid twenties, he used a lot of what we provided him.
1: Yeah, and I yeah. assume there's
0: a level of trust to do that, um, but you know the. I we used to joke that the vice president's office, at least back then, was a little bit like the JV team. We had the old <laughs> uniforms. Um, we had the computers <laughs> that you kind of had to kick a little bit. Um, <laughs> you'd be, you would think that the inventor of the internet would get us better uh, equipment, but we had all the old stuff, and. Um, uh, but part of that was we didn't have this huge approval process like they do. They right. did in the White House, and assume they still do. We literally stuff could roll off our computer uh, and our printer, and then it was in his briefing book. Uh, which yeah, at you know, 24, at 24 years old, I had no idea what a you know, you know yeah, what an opportunity thought, that was, and and how crazy it was. But he used the stuff we yeah. gave him, which was fantastic
1: yeah, well, I think that's one of the magic of or, or one of the magical things about working in politics in general. At the end of the day, you have uh, have kind of one person to um, you know, really please, and then you go off into the corporate world. and now you've got lawyers looking at your script, you've got accountants looking at your script. you have other business leaders looking at your script. So how is it different to help a CEO, deliver a speech and structure a speech for her or him uh from doing that in politics
0: i don't think the differences are that great uh to be Mm -hmm. honest with you um certainly you know the example i shared with gore was at least in my experience was a little bit of an anomaly that we didn't have those approval processes um in terms Mm -hmm. of a lot of hands in the in the soup and certainly the big speeches, we did have plenty, plenty of chefs, so to speak.
1: Um, a lot of yeah, help. I, a lot <laughs> of help.
0: <laughs> helps, an in, help's an interesting word. I'm not sure I would have <laughs> chose that one, but help. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, it's, and it goes to, you know, we have a book called The Political Speechwriter's Companion, yet both Bob and I would argue that overwhelmingly the lessons in the book are applicable to anyone interested in communications, anyone who's a speaker yeah, or a writer absolutely. or a communicator, whatever sector they may uh, work in. You know, I think the main difference uh, is probably that politics is just more contentious. Um, yeah. Some people hate that about politics. Other people, that's where the fun is. Um right. if, I'm trying to, you know, if I'm trying to think of a, you know, a corporate a- example, um, take the, the Boeing crisis that they've had this year. Uh, uh-huh. An Airbus executive would never be in a public speech telling you how unsafe a Boeing airplane is. Right. They, right. they might right. be doing that in their boardrooms or in their sales meetings and how they're going to take best advantage of a, you know, ha- have some, for, some sort of competitive advantage or comparative advantage, yeah. but they're not doing that in public speech. Um, yeah, and yet
1: that's the coin of the realm in politics.
0: Absolutely. You're all over it for, you know, Every possible drip and ounce you can take out of it. Um, so yeah. I think the contentious nature is different. Now, sometimes corporate leaders do that in you know there might be they might do something in jest. You know, there, yeah, I remember the um, was it Ricky Gervais who did the Verizon commercials and he would show you what I think may have been Sprint's coverage map and he would be like, but if you read the small print, it says the map is not to scale. Um, <laughs> That's right. So they, That's right. They That's might right. do it with a wink, a wink and a nod. But they're not doing it right. the way they would do it in politics. And I think that's the main difference. There are other differences in that, you know politicians just speak more,
2: right? Uh, so they
0: have yeah. their unique needs based on that. But, you but know, I think, you
1: know, now, now you touched on it a little bit before with, with Gary in terms of talking about some of the things that have changed. I'm just curious, when you really when you write now, whether it's for a politician or for or for an executive, uh, with all the changes in social media and live streaming and whatnot, do you try to write a speech in a way that you know it's more likely to have pickup in the electronic world?
0: A little bit, uh, although I, I, I would be careful not to uh, exaggerate how much I do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think there's some mechanics that have changed in writing. So, are you including a quote that you've already as part of your strategy determined will all will go out as a tweet either right after a speech or in real time? All right? So sometimes mm-hmm. there's that kind of strategic look at that goes into the writing process, not just the mm-hmm. amplifying process right, right. Uh, So that's changed a little, but aside from those mechanics, at least for me, my approach is the same, and mm-hmm. you know that approach which we Talk about in the book, and certainly from my time at GE, Gary and I, Gary, we've talked a lot about this. Right? But, you know, I think about there, you know, two questions that sound the same but are quite different. One is, what does it mean? And the other is, does it have meaning? And what does it mean is that mm-hmm. internal question that everyone can answer, um, almost robotically, and it's important. Vision, values, goals—all of those things are exactly. critically important. But does it have meaning is a question that's really targeted and specifically targeted on the audiences you're trying to reach.
2: Well, you know, I think that is so important, Eric, because, you know, internally, particularly and externally, even more so maybe, corporate speech writing has been replaced by PowerPoint in many cases, right? And I just Mm -hmm. think, um, uh, you know, when I joined GE back in the late 90s, there was a speechwriter for Jack Welch named Bill Lane, who, you know, was one of the best. Bill, just a a great man and uh, former Green Beret, and and he was a terrific speechwriter. But he would tell me about days at GE when there were four full-time speechwriters at corporate at GE, and they were writing for everybody. You know the vice chairman, yeah. the business leaders, you name it. And he uh, also told me about you know a couple two two martini lunches or the regularity of those lunches, you know, for the speech writers. <laughs> but now we sit in conference rooms and we churn through what's on the slide. We, yeah. we we become you know PowerPoint jockeys, and to your point, we don't think a lot about the arc of the narrative, or the meaning of what we're trying yeah. to say, and I've been through so many of these meetings, and sometimes I feel like just saying, "Hey, why don't we just give a speech?" And, and you know, right? And and I and I think that is becoming more and more true, and the need for that kind of per- personal and human connection just gets lost through PowerPoint.
0: I, I think that's right, but I sometimes also wonder. Um, the more that becomes true, that need, that need for that connection, uh, the more that becomes true at the same time are we seeing less people speaking publicly because PowerPoint has become such a crutch yeah. uh, and such a, you know, kind of like a safe way out, so to speak.
2: Do do you, uh, yeah. Eric, I'm just curious about, wh- wh- what's the, you know, name two or three speeches in history. You know, we all, uh, William Sapphire's book, Lend Me Your Ears, has... You know, yep. the list of great speeches through history, uh, at least mm-hmm. of the Western world. What, any, Anything that, you know, I, I my love began, of course, with uh, the Challenger speech and Reagan yep. uh, and Peggy Noonan's work on that. And I think that did inspire. A- anything that, you know, inspired you over the years?
0: One speech that I keep going back to all the time, and I went back to recently this summer with the anniversary, is the President Kennedy speech at Rice.
2: Mm hmm. Right. Um, mm mm-hmm.
0: And it's obviously famous for the line that Sorensen wrote for posterity. We do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Um, But to see that speech only for that line or only for the challenge um, really robs you of a chance to explore wonderful speech writing. Sorensen starts with this amazing figurative analogy of how fast, um, you know, human life has progressed. Mm-hmm. It's, just, and it's just so imaginative. Um, mm-hmm. bef- before he actually says that line, um, he asks jokingly, why does Rice play Texas? Which <laughs> uh, well, just shows you... In football. It just shows right? you this, yeah, which right. just shows you, like... For those listening to the podcast who don't know, you know he was at Rice University. Rice played Texas every year in football, which meant they lost by a lot of points every year. <laughs> so, as a way almost of alerting the audience that this big line was coming up, he just sneaks yeah. in this tiny piece of wit.
2: Yeah, exactly. And if
0: you watch the if you watch the you know the 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 video of that, the speech is actually interrupted by people applauding that line, and they actually do <laughs> well, not applaud. The line that the we know. The
2: big
0: line. <laughs> the big line. That you can go right through. But Rice placed, and that just shows you the power of touching the people in the seats or the, that specific audience. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I call it a how to, yeah. the how to hell when the people in the audience look at the person next to them and say, how the hell did that guy know that? <laughs>
1: um,
0: yeah. And it, yeah. it yeah. ends with this, you know, really powerful call to action that's concrete um, and again has some more wit. It's just a, you know, from
1: top to tail, so to speak. It's a wonderful speech. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. Um, and and in, there are clearly uh, a number of great speeches, particularly over the last hundred years, that any of us could pick. And, yep. uh, and President Kennedy certainly had more than his fair share of great speeches. And, but reflecting on a Democratic president gets me to thinking about Uh, The Democrats that are now running for president and who of this crowd, as you look at them, um, are persuasive speakers who are helping themselves uh, on the campaign circuit by being good at giving speeches and who's not based on your expert advice.
0: So uh, let me start with the who I think is doing a a good job and helping their cause uh, with their speeches. I certainly think Elizabeth Warren is helping Mm -hmm. her cause. Um, You know, she is able to kind of um, roll in her story in a way that speaks to the values that she's trying to share. Um, Mm -hmm. She's certainly um, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. well-rehearsed in terms of the way she gestures and works a a crowd and moves around the stage. Um, There's actually a, um, I would encourage you to look, there's this great, series in the Washington Post by the um, Peter Marks, who's the, the film or theater critic, but he is kind of reviewing each of the main candidates huh. uh, on their speeches. Right. And uh, Mike, I don't know your music sensibilities, but I know Gary's. So he <laughs> <laughs> he actually, get, get ready,
2: Gary.
1: Uh-oh. He
0: actually said that she was like a folksy troubadour, the
1: Springsteen
0: of 2020.
2: Oh. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, but, uh, (laughs) I haven't heard people scream that during her speeches yet, but I think she's doing herself well. Um, I think, uh, Pete Buttigieg is also doing well for himself, uh, on the stump. There was a piece a while back in the New York times, uh, that talked about his power as a storyteller. Uh, and this was early on when his kind of surge was just beginning and the critique was that he wasn't getting into policy specifics
2: Mm -hmm, and Mm -hmm.
0: his quote was, if I remember it correctly from the article was, I talk about specifics. I just don't lead with them. (laughs) And and, and I think that's, it's really telling because there are many candidates. Uh, Mike and I were having an earlier conversation about uh, Julian Castro, who, you know, just is determined to share his policy chops so much so that he, You know, it it sometimes sounds state of the union because he goes through, and there's no doubt he has policy expertise, but he's leading with something that doesn't connect and make that that doesn't resonate with an audience the way that Buttigieg does.
1: Yeah, well, and and what what I was saying, Gary, uh, in talking to Eric earlier was that. It's interesting because Castro has this wonderful life story about how he got interested in politics and his grandmother and and mother were uh, engaged in the the politics of San Antonio when he was growing up. Um, And then he comes into a room, and it's almost like he's trying to see if he can make some connection. And maybe it's because everybody's trying to get that 2% to get on to the next debate. It's like it's like a scatter sometimes because he's covering the terrain, talking very briefly about twenty different issues. It's, it's and I wonder what's what's that right balance, <laughs> you know, for somebody giving a, a political speech between the policy element and connecting on specific issues versus the ability to lift this all up and inspire so that people actually are attracted to them as individuals and not just attracted to a a litany of issues.
0: I really do think a lot of that goes to their ability as storytellers, and this is obviously true for all leaders, and understanding, um, and one of the things we talk about a lot in the book is, you know, uh, this need to be concrete, and when we say need to be concrete, we're not talking about policy specifics, we're talking about the kind of details that give mm-hmm. people what my English professor in college used to call the shock of recognition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know, they people can see the image, or they can see the, a family like the one a candidate might be talking about, or they could see an element in their own lives similar to what the candidate is talking about. Uh, and and are they concrete? And you know, Beto O'Rourke's a great example. Um, you know, one of the things we kind of decry is what we call profundity through abstraction. I'm gonna talk about these. <laughs> ideas you better explain in such that, abstract Eric. Way. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little meta. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about these issues in such an abstract, what I think is, quote unquote, presidential or lofty way, but I'm not really sharing any details that people can grab onto. Yeah, yeah. And, and that yeah. happens in the corporate world, too, although often it's probably profundity through jargon. Right. And, and it's not and and if you look at someone like Beto O'Rourke, I think he was really struggling with that and uh, unfortunate um the reason, but this El Paso yes. um you know, tragedy gave him something that all right, here are the values I think I've been talking about and now here's the way that I can talk about them in a concrete way that that people
2: are mm-hmm. yearning for. So so let me jump yeah. let me jump just quickly, Eric, um since your book is about uh political speech writing. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but obviously, you know, on the other side of the aisle um, is the president who gives quite unconventional speeches, um, you know, and uh, after El Paso and Dayton, uh, the need for comforting the country, it was – I mean, he found it quite difficult. In fact, you know, got the the location wrong. Um, Right. And then particularly – In you know, in these rallies that he does with regularity, um, you know, most of that is a is a negative message. Most of what he delivers at those is a negative message. And so what would advice would you give to someone these days who sees the president succeeding at least with 40 plus percent of the population of the U.S. with a very negative message about who's bad, who's a liar? You know who's fake? All of those things, which are resonating uh, still with uh, with his base.
0: Yeah, Uh, you know it's it's one of the hardest questions to answer. So, and the reason I say that is we have a whole chapter on ethics, which right, you know, what it comes down to is like don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Um, But you know, Mm -hmm. but in twenty nineteen, you need a chapter on that. Um, you know, those <laughs> are obvious lessons. But when I teach in the classroom, all of students uh, push back all the time. It works, right? Why yeah. shouldn't we communicate that way if it works? And it's not just students. We interviewed um, uh, a Republican speechwriter for the book because we wanted to include views opposite of our own and give people. We certainly don't have a monopoly on these on these ideas and let people push back. Mm -hmm. And he really grabbed on to this idea that you should take the president uh, or the difference between Democrats and Republicans, at least in this heated stage we are right now, is that the Democrats who don't like Trump are taking things literally not seriously. And the Trump supporters take things seriously, not literally. Mm
2: hmm. Mm, and very good my
0: yeah. argument right my argument and i think it's selena zita zito is that who kind of maybe championed that argument yeah, I'm not
2: exactly exactly mm-hmm. sure yeah right. yeah
0: but my argument as a speech writer and someone who cares about the craft was like can't we do both right yeah and you know i Great think you know, when i when i look at and shouldn't we do both not just can't we do both because i know we can um mm-hmm. but shouldn't we do both you know And we go through a lot of examples to show where here was a, you know, kind distortion. Honest, (laughs) if I'm being kind, it's a distortion. If I'm being straightforward, it's a lie. But look how easy it is to fix. Right. Yeah. Um, Here's a fallacy, but two words, and it's and it's a credible argument. Um, Yeah. You know, so we're always encouraging people that you become more persuasive if you kind of avoid those tactics and on trump specifically you know i'm left a little bit with that i think his the kind of the distortion part the dishonest part is an anomaly Mm -hmm. but the way he connects with audiences is a lesson that all communicators and executives should heed
2: interesting
1: yeah because there's a little bit of there's a little bit of you know he's trying to go to their sensibilities. He's trying to uh, create a stir on the emotional side. And I think one of the great practices for any writer is that they connect both to the head and the heart. Um, Absolutely. Now, now, the title of your book is The Political Speechwriter's Companion. And I know that you work also with executives. Are, are are there any CEOs out there that you respect for their ability at storytelling and to give a good speech?
0: Yeah, there's a there's a lot of them uh, that I I respect. Um, I don't think as a whole they're using story enough, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: but when they do, they're very successful. Um, so I'll, let me share a few. Uh, although I realize mm-hmm. he stepped down, and even the stories have come under a little sure. scrutiny. But Howard uh-huh. Schultz
2: Eric, you, te- you an, teach storytelling, yeah. right? I'm sorry to interrupt but you, I do You, you teach storytelling, okay
0: Yep, and, and we can talk more about that Because it's really interesting Of how executives and communicators view story And the idea that Why is this story relevant For the people I'm trying to reach Right Which mm-hmm. is critical And, you know When people see what is really A pretty simple progression That it's not just a story about me but it's a story about we or a self a story about self versus a story about us and the only difference between the two is that you've added a moral at the end
2: <laughs> right
0: right oh right basically <laughs> a lesson a
2: exactly. lesson that
0: one shows your own humility because you needed to learn it and two that you can share it because it's worthwhile yeah. and then when you add another just tiny tweak you have a moral and now a call to action well, that's leadership communications right there. that's yeah. storytelling for leaders, um, and those are just two small tweaks—a moral and a call to action—and your story becomes well, relevant to, to a call. whole lot more people.
2: Terrific. All right. So you said Howard uh, Schultz. I interrupted you.
0: Yeah, I think Howard Schultz is—you is, know—when if you listen to him talk about you know why he wanted to provide a health care benefit or the kind of the origins of the company, really tremendously effective storytelling. Um. This will probably be a controversial one because of leadership style, but I think Elon Musk mm-hmm. is a very good storyteller.:
2: mm-hmm. interesting. And I think
0: he's a good mm-hmm. sto- I think he's a good storyteller in the idea that the best stories have um, what I call the reverse nesting doll effect, so those Russian mm-hmm. nesting dolls yeah, that yeah, start really um, big and then you keep opening them until they're the size of a peanut. Well these best stories start as a peanut and then get bigger and bigger and bigger until they speak to everyone. And when Mm -hmm. Musk is talking about these moonshot technologies, um, everyone Mm -hmm. can buy into that, and it's inspiring. So I think he's actually a pretty good storyteller.
2: Not so much when he's talking about the SEC,
1: but move (laughs) on. Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) Or smoky marijuana. Or smoky marijuana. Or or the (laughs)
0: substances substances that give life to these stories. Yeah. I prefaced it by saying it was controversial. No, no, Um, no, I got (laughs) you. I agree. And and legal in some states. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I think Sheryl Sandberg's a good good storyteller.
2: Interesting. I
0: think particularly with the, and I realize this is now a few years, but on the lean-in stuff, and when she's speaking to women executives, she realizes sometimes that the numbers of women at the top don't do justice to the stories about women at the top and their struggles to get there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, and I think she does that really well um, for years. Warren Buffett has been able to speak to oh, people yeah. outside the investment community because yeah. well, he's a good storyteller. Yep. um and whenever um I do my presentations, I show a thirty second clip of our former boss, Gary Jeff Mel, oh great and the And the clip I show is he was at um, the G.E. University in Crotonville. And so he was talking to managers. And it was right around the time that he agreed to be the job czar for President Obama. Oh, right. And there was all this pushback. Right, all this pushback. Gary
1: remembers that all too well. Yeah, I just
0: (laughs) started (laughs) sweating. so, So he'll also remember that when he was asked about it, Um, Jeff used to say, well, the reason I'm doing it is I've been very fortunate and I should give back and we're a large-scale company with a lot to say about the economy. And that was the answer. And then someone asked at an internal meeting and he said, listen, my folks, my parents watch Fox News 24 hours a day. (laughs) And I called my mom and said, I want to give you a heads up. Um, The president asked me to do this. And he said, and she said, you said no, right? <laughs> <laughs> and true it, story. I said, it's no. a true story. They said, said, no, Mom, that's not what I said. I said, I've been fortunate and I should give back, and we're a large-scale company with a lot to say about the economy. But that 30 <laughs> seconds, right, the, the idea why storytelling so effective isn't because it lifts a speaker even higher above the audience. It's because it levels the area between yeah, audience
2: exactly. and speaker. That's a great makes him point. So,
0: right? Jeff Innell calls his mom. I call my mom. Right. right. And and it just it showed him to be human. It showed him to be funny. It soothed skeptics who didn't like it, not because he wasn't keeping the eye on the company, but because they didn't like the politics. It accomplished so much in 30 short seconds. It's just a great example of
2: storytelling. Terrific. Terrific. Well, listen, Eric, I, now, you're well known for your political humor, right? So... And, yep. and, and, and I would say this about Jeff. We just praised him. You and I both wrote a lot of jokes for Jeff over yeah. the years. and He's going to kill me for this. But he was, he was not a good deliverer of jokes. And we, and we knew that. We knew that. He's a, he's a funny guy. But if you, if you wrote a set piece for him, it probably wouldn't right. turn out well. And, and, and so, um, it, it's, so it's quite a dangerous thing to do when you're writing a speech, because it's really a a skill to deliver a joke. So first, how how'd you get started writing political humor? Tell us some of the people you've uh, written jokes for, and what was your best one?
0: Well, I probably started like most people who write jokes start, and that is by speaking up against my parents and being um, a wise guy and being (laughs) put on what my father called the list. Yeah. That was probably the start of it when I, when I arrived in Gore's office, um, and Mike alluded to this earlier. This kind of you know reputation of him as a speaker, and certainly, you know, while he was a good client in many regards, he could deliver a doozy that made him not such a good client, um, and he'd be the first to admit that as well. But we were always yeah. trying to, um, we were always trying to fight back this idea of him being stiff and wooden and do it through self-deprecating humor. And, you know, I wasn't the only one. There were people who were also very good at it, both inside and some external help. But writing these jokes and one-liners came fairly easily to me. I never thought about it before. (laughs) Um, And so I just started doing it, right? People needed a line. He's going on this show. Yeah, oh, here you go. Um, So it just started that way somewhat organically. And then, you know, through the years, I've now worked on just dozens of, you know, Alfalfa Club speeches, Gridiron Iron Club mm, yeah. speeches, um, contributed to White House Correspondence Dinner speeches, uh, both sides. So I've, you know, I contributed jokes when Hillary Clinton did the L. Smith dinner. I've contributed jokes to Obama and the White House Correspondence Dinners. I've, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the Castro brothers, who did these, you know, a couple of these speeches together, um, Sandra Day O'Connor, we, there's a great <laughs> anecdote in the book about
2: yes, what yes He did in right. an
0: alfalfa. Um, and then I wrote a gridiron speech for Sarah Palin. My wife still won't forgive me. It was 10 years ago now. Um,
2: <laughs> How did it go I, I, over? How did it go over?
0: Well? Really well. So it's, it's a great lesson for any communicator. Um, Al Hunt, who in many ways is the dean of some of these dinners, called me one day and said, like, I got one for you. What about helping Sarah Palin? And I was like, ah, I don't think so. Who's the Democrat? And he said, the Democrat's Barney Frank. (laughs) And he's like, (laughs) and he gave me great advice. He's like, if Barney Frank is funny, people are going to leave the dinner saying Barney Frank was funny. If Sarah Palin is funny, people are going to leave the dinner asking who wrote it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, it was great so, so what was the best line from that? Uh,
0: the best – gosh, the best line from the Sarah Palin speech. Um, so
1: <laughs> there
0: was a cheap shot at Joe Biden based on her book called Going Rogue which was if right, the election right. just turned out differently, he would have been writing the book called Going Rogaine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm usually not a champion of the puns, um, but I did like that one. Yeah. And then we, we also did a, a big buildup in that one where she started by describing this moment when she arrived at the McCain ranch. Uh, and, she, and what we did was, I walked up to him, he was waiting on his front porch to shake my hand and I said, Senator, I know why I am here. And then we literally went and at the time looked at Timothy Geithner, testimony, not even a speech, like the most arcane testimony we could find, and we gave her a paragraph of (laughs) testimony (laughs) to, I know why I'm here, and then it was all this stuff about derivatives and um, so obviously the juxtaposition worked pretty well. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> but, but Gary, to go to your question about the favorite... Your joke
2: best page, one, yeah.
0: I think it was actually for George W. Bush, and it was a little bit by accident. Um, there was an alfalfa dinner, and for the listeners, that's a very kind of exclusive Washington club, um, like most exclusive clubs won't last forever. Um, and it leans conservative, and the Bush family has been just has loved this dinner throughout the years, and usually many of them attend. And the, we were writing for the Democrat at the time, and the person who puts this dinner on said, you have to have a joke about all these Bushes who are going to be here. 41, 43, Barbara, Jeb, Marvin, Neil Bush, George, um, George P., Doro, Koch Bush, they're all going to be there. And the original joke was, okay, why don't we list them and say, you know, um, they're all here, you know, and list their names and say, or as we call them in the family, 41, 43, 46, 47, 49, 50. (laughs) 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 And that was going to work. And then at the very last minute, I said, what if we tweak it a little bit? Because And they were all there, like all the brothers, Neil, Marvin, George, they were all there. And we said, list all their names and say, or as we call them in the family, 41, 43, 46, 47, 50, 51, and Marvin.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's a great <laughs> <point>. and, our,
0: <laughs> and our speaker wouldn't do it because he didn't want to make fun of someone's name. And we had told... Um, Landon Parvin, who um, famous on the Republican side for writing these speeches, wrote one for Nancy Reagan that um, solidified his place in political humor writing. We had told him, and he called us and was like, "I'm outside the Oval. Can I give this joke to the president? He's going to love it." And we're <laughs> we're like, "Well, okay." And from the report back was that you, you know George W. Bush. Just took so much joy in being able to rib his brother.
1: Um, <laughs> so,
0: <that's, laughs> so, one of my favorites, I didn't even um, have the pleasure of handing it to my client.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, uh, there you go. Uh, that's great. Uh, thanks, Eric, for being on the crux. The name of the book is The Political Speech Writer A Guide for Speakers and Writers. Eric, where is the best place for someone to get a copy?
0: So the best place right now, we'll have a website up this week, but the best place right now is go to Amazon and search Political Speechwriter's Companion. Um, it's after Labor Day, but it's the one with the white cover. The blue cover is the first edition, still amazing. The white <laughs> cover is the second edition and brand new.
2: <laughs> Terrific. That's great. That's great. Thanks, Eric. And good luck with the thank book. Thank you,
0: Mike, and thank you, Gary. Take All care. Right. All right. Bye-bye.
2: Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.